Now grab a seat. Um, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. So as you're grabbing a seat, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers. I'm sure they will, uh, they will move to get you guys some Bibles. Um, you can raise your hand. They'd be happy to get you one. Matthew chapter 5. So we're actually starting a brand new series um, going through what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Mountain. It's the story, the, the message of Jesus. Uh, it's, I mean, in the Bible, there's all sorts of recorded messages or teachings or ideas or concepts that are conveyed. I mean, Moses teaches and communicates. We see in the New Testament guys like Peter, of course. Um, but Jesus preaches a message, and this is Jesus' message. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 is what we're going to be looking at. So we've been in a series throughout this entire year of what we're calling the Year of Biblical Literacy. I have a slide up here that kind of shows you where we're at, where we should be reading in terms of the Bible. Um, so if you look at this, it's kind of like an overall map of the Bible from um, the very beginning, uh, otherwise known as creation and fall, all the way to the end, which is the book of Revelation. So right now, uh, as a church family, we've been reading through the entire Bible. We've been using a program called the Read Scripture app, which is uh, from the Bible Project. If you're familiar with them, you can just check them out online as well. And uh, so we've kind of read all the way from creation, fall, Abrahamic covenant, um, the Exodus, the wilderness experience, the covenant sign, and so on, all the way down to right now where we're at the prophets in, or uh, the prophets of exile. So that's kind of fancy terminology to describe when the children of Israel were off in Babylon. Um, this, these were there's a series of writings uh, from people that were called prophets uh, to the people of Israel to remain faithful to God. In some cases, they were rebuttals or rebukes against how they were not faithful to God, so on. And so today, if you've been following along through the Read Scripture app, we should be on Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 32. Um, let me just say this real quick. For some of you guys, I know this is one of the biggest challenges, that if you are behind, which perhaps might be a lot of you, I know I have fallen behind myself quite a bit, I think by a couple of books, and uh, yes, that's, that's, that's happens. And, but the fact of the matter is, is uh, one of two things I would encourage you to do. Either one, um, work double time to get back caught up. But don't do so in a sense of like, ah, I'm a failure, I failed. Don't wear that. You don't deserve that. You don't, that doesn't belong to you. This is not about succeeding or accomplishing or making this kind of like a, a goal to where if you fail, somehow you are a bad person or you're failing as a Christian and so on. Um, again, the idea of reading scriptures, we want to learn about who God is. So if you have fallen behind, it's okay. Um, and if you're really, really far behind, it's, it's not a problem for you to just jump right in here. Like jump into the, uh, you know, the eight foot end of the pool. That's, that's okay too. Like that, you might have missed a couple books. It's okay. Just, you can pick up either right here. So you got a couple of different options. But whatever it is, don't feel that sense of guilt or shame. It, you don't, it doesn't belong to you. Amen. So there you go. Amen. So the point is, let's just keep reading through, keep going through. So we started this at the beginning of the year, January. And uh, we had a couple of teaching series along the lines of helping you to read the Bible. So we spent the first five weeks unpacking how to read the Bible, questions of how should we read, how should we approach this book. The next several weeks, about eight weeks or so, we looked at what we call the story of God, which is this overarching narrative. The big idea that we're trying to convey in that is that the Bible, uh, which is a library of 66 books, conveys one unified story from Genesis to Revelation about Jesus. Did you know that? It's written by dozens of authors over hundreds of years on three, at least three different continents, and yet there is this one unified storyline of Jesus from the beginning to the end. 
And uh, so if, if you're unfamiliar with that, that's kind of a new concept to you. Highly recommend going back on our website and checking out those messages and listening to them. And then what we just finished was a series of teachings, what we call the language of faith. Because what we said is that every epic uh, novel, every epic story, every epic uh, narrative has language or vocabulary that's intrinsic to it. So, um, again, you think of Lord of the Rings, you think of Harry Potter, you think of any other epic uh, drama that there is language, terminology, words, ideas, concepts, metaphors that are part of that storyline. And if you're unfamiliar with those ideas and concepts and words, you could read the story and make some sense of it. But to some degree, to some large degree, there may be important ideas and concepts that might be uh, beyond your understanding. And not only that, but in terms of the Bible, what we oftentimes do is we don't just simply read the Bible as a blank slate. We import ideas that maybe we've had from our childhood. Maybe we had from a bad church experience that we had. So when we hear words like grace, to us, grace doesn't really mean grace, at least how the Bible describes it. Grace for us might mean working really hard in order to earn God's favor. Like, that's not grace, according to the Bible. And so the vocabulary, the ideas, the words, the phrases, we spent several weeks looking at the language of faith. So today, we're going to be jumping into a brand new series that will basically take us almost to the end of the year, on and through the three chapters that are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, that are commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. So, I'm excited about this, and the reason why I feel like this plays really well into the bigger picture of the year of biblical literacy is because what we're learning now in this story is what Jesus thinks about the Christian life, what Jesus thinks of what it looks like to live under the reign of God. So, this is really important. Um, So, if you have a Bible that has red lettering, anybody have that? Red lettering? So, right now, for the next three chapters, your, your Bible is going to be like a Christmas tree, just lit up with red lettering, because pretty much everything that you're about to read is directly like from the mouth of Jesus. So it's really amazing, this story, this uh, sermon that Jesus gives us uh, should, if you read it rightly, should surprise you, should shock you, should be offensive to you, in some cases might even be straight up troubling to you. And if you read the story of Jesus, the sermon of Jesus, and you get none of that, I would either suggest, one, you're not paying attention clearly, right? You might be multitasking too much. Slow down, focus, be mindful. Uh, Secondly, uh, you might not be understanding what Jesus is saying. Uh, Thirdly, it might be too overly familiar to you. So how many of you ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Raise your hand. All right? So I would suggest that for the overwhelming majority of us in this room, those of us that are familiar to some degree with the story or the Sermon on the Mount, that puts us in a very particular state of danger. I'm serious. Because of over-familiarity. When you become overly familiar with something, because let me just put it this way, Jesus' original hearers, when they heard the message of Jesus, they would have been shocked. I mean, some shocked in a way of like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Others shocked like, oh my gosh, somebody should kill him. But no matter the case, Jesus' words created a response, a radical response of either heightened celebration and joy and elation or straight up anger and frustration. But it generated a response. So I'm just going to suggest this to you and I, that if we read this and we have no response, we might fit in one of those three categories. 
throw that on the table. So what I want to do now is I want to read um, a handful of passages. I'll pray, and we'll begin to look at the first 11 passages or verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So how about we do this? How about we all stand, and we'll read the passage of Scripture together. And the way I think we'll do this, we did this a couple weeks ago, we'll do this again somewhat this like this this week, but um, I think a couple weeks ago we did like men read one, women read the next. We're not going to do that. Instead, what we're going to do is I kind of divide it up into white and orange. So the orange, I'll read, and then the white, we'll all read together. So we got this slide. Uh, there you go. Here we go. So what we'll do is we'll just read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, and then what we'll do is we'll go to the very last passage of Jesus's sermon. Um, and if you want to think of it this way, it's, it's about reverse engineering, all right? Um, we want to ask the question, where's Jesus going with all this? What's Jesus' big idea that he's trying to convey? And what's his heart? What's his mindset? Well, you'll find the reason why I'm reading the very first intro, as well as the uh, last words of Jesus, I think is to create kind of this, uh, this contrast for you to be able to see how important it is to pay attention to everything that's in between. So just in case if you are asking, wondering why do we have the skip from Matthew chapter 5 and then to Matthew chapter 7, that's why. We're reading the very first intro lines and then the very last in, uh, outro words of Jesus. So I'll begin by reading the orange. You guys will read the white and we'll kind of go back and forth until we're finished with the little section. There. So I'll start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 2 says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. God, we uh, come to you this morning, and we ask you that you would help create an astonishment in our hearts towards what you have spoken, towards who you are. Got to pray that you would uh, undo or reinform our overfamiliarity. God, that you would waken our hearts from our distractions, from the things that we find ourselves encumbered by or filled with anxiety over. And God, in this moment, we just pray that you would allow us to be able to hear what the Spirit of God has to speak to us. So we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray, God, that you would meet with us in a, in a way that brings transformation and astonishment back to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you all to grab a seat. Uh, the title of today's message is, Who are the Blessed? Because what we're going to read in the very first 11 verses of what we call the Sermon on the Mount are what's commonly called the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitudes, we'll look at in just a moment, comes from a particular word that means that's translated in most of our Bibles as blessed. Anybody have a different translation other than blessed? Maybe like, oh, how happy. Anybody have that? Oh, how happy. I think NIV might translate it as such. 
Um, but the, we'll get to that in just a moment. But the big idea is this big question of like, who are the blessed ones? Um, this is an important question. I think I would even go so far as to say that this is what our, our culture at large, we're asking these questions. Like, who is blessed? Did you, I don't know if you know this. I just was in the checkout stand yesterday. But the front cover of Time magazine is all about the, who are the happy, like the, the, the science behind happiness. It's an interesting article. I've read it before. I think there's a book, actually, that's about that. And there's a whole science behind it. Do you know that the very first number one scientific, or they say scientific, like evidence or proof that, that brings about or has demonstrated happiness or uh, that has shown that people that have this, whatever number one is, uh, have been scientifically proven to be more happy. You know what it is? It's awe. A sense of awe. S- sense of astonishment. There's a sense of like they, they can walk through life and look at things and be amazed by it. So my, my hope, my prayer is as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, that if anything, that there maybe be a reintroduction of a sense of astonishment in your heart for the things of who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to in this world. And my, my hope is that as we look through this, that that will happen. So the title again, as I mentioned, is Who are the Blessed? And what I want to do is I want to jump into this bigger question. And so first of all, I want to ask a couple questions about the text, and then we'll just jump in and kind of read through it verse by verse and make some comments as we go through. Um, so what was, first of all, Jesus' message not about? I think it's an important question because I think there's a tendency to misread these Beatitudes or even read the Sermon on the Mount. So I think we have to, first of all, address on a negative, like, what is this not about? What's, what Jesus' message is not? So number one, it's not rules to gain acceptance from God. So in other words, if you read um, the, the book of, or the Sermon on the Mount, and you somehow uh, deduct or take away from that, like, if I were to live this, God will accept me. That's not at all what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if you sought to make it that, um, you just being kind, but you will fail. And, and when you fail, or you might think that you're succeeding. So when you fail, you'll be overcome by despair. If you think that you're actually succeeding, then you'll be overcome by arrogance and pride, which basically both of those undo the very aim of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So number one, it's not rules to gain acceptance from God. Secondly, it's not a handbook of morality or ethics or virtues or self-help. I think there's a tendency to kind of reduce the Sermon on the Mount to like this pamphlet, all right? Pamphlet-sized version of Jesus's ethics on on how to how to how to live. In other words, um, if if you can just live according to this book, you will live a virtuous life. Now there are virtues in it. Don't don't misunderstand me. There are things that I would suggest that Jesus says um, there are ways to be human that reflect rightly the character and the personhood of who God is. But it's different than this mentality. I would say it's a very Western American mentality. It says just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, go and try to help and improve yourself, and then you'll live a better life. And again, I would even say that there are tendencies that, that in ways that we can even do that, but at some point, even those things have an expiration date. It is an interesting thing to note that when you go to like Barnes & Noble, the number one largest section in that store um, is like the self-help section, right? Because apparently, apparently, in the American ethos or ethic or idea is that we have this recognition that there's something that's not right about the human condition. And therefore, we need to somehow do something about that to fix it, a.k.a. self-help. So the Sermon on the Mount is really not this handbook. In other words, memorize it, read it, figure it out, go do it, and you'll be a better person. 
Now, again, I think you, you, you would be a better person, but even that has, has an expiration date. So it really brings us to the question of, like, what is the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes, the intro 11 verses all about? Next slide. So some would describe this as like the Magna Carta or the charter um, of God's kingdom. So Jesus is basically giving this layout of this is what it looks like. I, I like this next phrase, the thing about this. What it looks like to live under God's authority. So here's a question to, by way of contrast. What does it look like to not live under God's authority? What does it look like? I would, I would suggest that looks like America. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm serious. Like, that would look like just any, anybody. Like, like, think about that. What, what does it look like for you to not live under the authority of God? What does it look like for you to live as a slave to your own desires and longings and aspirations and hopes that are not bathed or washed or cleansed or part of the authority of God? What, what does that look like? What does that look like for you to wake up in the morning without your coffee? It's kind of the, the big idea here. Um, and, and this is the idea. That in contrast to that, um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is really this, it's addressing this bigger issue of like, here's what it looks like to live under the authority, the good rule, the good reign of God. And he begins to unpack for this and describe it. And again, this is where I would even suggest it's radically offensive to those that do not want to live under the reign of God. So as we chart this course, we're going to look at this. I would suggest that, if, again, if you're really paying attention to this, there's enough in the, me- in the message of Jesus that could, should, if anything, challenge, at worst may deeply offend you. Because Jesus addresses anything and everything from how you respond to your enemies. So, straight up, as human individuals, how do we typically respond to those that do us wrong, that hate us, that aren't kind to us? We typically respond in kind. So if someone's mean or violent, we respond in meanness or in violence. Or at least, you know, if that's not your personality, we are passive-aggressive about it. But the point of the matter is, those are, those are other attempts that are humanly fashioned and formed. In other words, it's just simply the way the world operates. What Jesus is doing, he's saying there's a different way to be human. There's a different way to treat enemies. Jesus also will address things like sexuality and how we think about sexuality and how we think about marriage and divorce and covenants, and relationships, and our neighbor, and who's our neighbor, and our enemy, and all these things, in violence, in retaliation, and retribution, all of these things Jesus will address. And also, here's another one that everyone you guys are going to love, is money. How do you think about your money? There's enough in here that should shock you. But again, here's what I would suggest. Is that if Jesus is a king, then what Jesus spreads, and communicates, and speaks on has to do with how we are to live in relation to the king. In other words, how are we to be good kingdom citizens of God's good kingdom? How we rightly reflect that. So, that's over the, next, over the course of the next several months, I would say, as we begin to look at this. But what I want to do right now is, again, just what is, what's Jesus' message? And this is where I go back to this. It looks, what, what it is to look like to live under God's authority. Okay, next slide. Um, I want to ask the bigger question because we're going to look at this in just a moment. Here, let me read this quote because this is really good. Jonathan Pennington was a, a guy who had written a book um, called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. It's basically a commentary on not only the Beatitudes, but also kind of the backstory of the Beatitudes. And he says this, really fascinating. He says, the Beatitudes, which is the first 11 passages we'll look at in just a moment, um, they define the character and the conduct 
of those whom God has already claimed as his own children. And then he goes on to say they are the pronouncements of divine blessing and they describe those to whom Jesus spoke as privileged recipients of God's favor. So what do people look like who have received God's favor? How do they live? Uh, Again, the bigger question maybe we can ask is what does the good life look like? What does it look like to live the good life? Uh, Next slide is the bigger question is what does blessed mean? Because that's an important question. Because again, for the next 11 verses we're going to read, at least, again, depending upon how you describe this or define this or break this down, and scholars kind of debate over the extensiveness of this, whether it's eight or nine, but let's just say, for example, for the record, there's eight. But either way, he describes this word blessed, and he uses it recurringly, and it means something. So the question is, what does it mean to be blessed, right? And it's an important question, because I don't think this is a phrase or a word that you and I use very often, except for like, hashtag blessed, but I'm pretty certain that's not exactly what... Uh, the writer Matthew intends or means, but what does the word blessed mean? Uh, so we're going to geek out on you just two seconds here. It's, it comes from the Greek word makarios. In the Latin, we get the Greek word or the Latin word beatus or uh, beatific. It's the idea of be, we get the word beatitudes from. It's the idea of happy. The word happy and uh, beatitudes also comes from, or the word beauty comes from the word beatitude. And the idea is sort of this commingling, the connection between beauty and goodness and happiness. Um, now, when we talk about happiness, is where I would suggest um, a translation that might use the word happy in your Bible is not the best translation. Here's why. Because I think when we think about the word happiness, we tend to think of uh, an experience or an emotion that we get when circumstances in our life are going swell. You agree with that? Right? When the, when the rent's able to be paid, when you're able to maybe even have a little bit extra money over so that you can go get a $4 latte, or when you can go on vacation, or when you get the job that you're hoping to get, or uh, she says yes, or whatever. The point of the matter is you get this idea that when everything lines up swimmingly in your life, we would say hashtag blessed, or I'm happy. Happy has to do with the word happenstance. It's connected. Happiness is derived from circumstances, happenstances that are happening in my life. In other words, my ability to have some level of stability or some level of equilibrium or joy or excitement or happiness in that equilibrium is directly connected to the circumstances in my life. And what I would suggest to you, that's where that commonly cultural word of happy is totally different from the word blessed. Because what you're going to find is that Jesus is going to make this pronouncement over a group of people saying that you're blessed and their lives suck. I mean, just straight up, their lives are really messed up. You're going to see that in just a moment here. So the question is, how in the world can Jesus say, declare a blessing or a blessed life over people whose lives, according to the world's description, are totally messed up? And that's the big question that we really try to, we have to try to answer and ask, even in our own lives. Because, and here's what the big takeaway that you can have for this. Because let's suppose for you, your life is not really great. In other words, you're not getting ahead in the ways that you thought that you were going to get ahead. Or you only have 45 followers on Instagram. Or any time you post something on Facebook, it's always creating chaos and destruction and anger. And now you've lost all your friends. And the point of the matter is, how, how can you and I, or if you get diagnosed with cancer or whatever, how can you and I have some level of flourishing even in the midst of the most horrific circumstances in our life? That's the big question. Because apparently, 
this introduction of this sermon of Jesus describes a handful of people that could actually tap into, quote-unquote, this good life, this blessed life, in spite of really bad circumstances. So I thought it would be kind of fun, if you think about it this way again, it has another translation that you can think of as the word happy. This is where this one scholar and theologian I just uh, had quoted, he describes this as having a deep connection to the Old Testament concept of flourishing, which is this amazing word. I like this word flourishing to describe this. So he describes it this way, that you can actually supplement or substitute that word um, for blessed, for oh, how flourishing is the one, right? So if you were from down under, from Australia, one of the closest ways in the English we can use this is you would say good on you, mate, right? The idea, it's not just oh, how happy is the one that has X, Y, and Z, but it's good on the one or how flourishing is the one that has whatever circumstances or what types of circumstances they might be going through in their life or in spite of the circumstances. So I like to think of it this way. We all in our culture have this idea as to what the good life is. What does it mean to actually have either happiness or blessing or some sense of flourishing in our life? So think about um, how we on the Central Coast think about a flourishing life is going to be distinct from how people think about a flourishing life, say, in Costa Rica or in other parts of the world or, say, in El Salvador. It's going to be different. So I thought it would be kind of fun to just take two seconds here to think about audience participation. What are some ways in which our culture, which we have these pronouncements, what are some pronouncements that we either here on the Central Coast or in our own westernized culture in general think about if you have X, Y, and Z, oh, how happy or how flourishing or how blessed are you? What would we say? Equates to a good flourishing, happy, good life. What, what would be some of those pronouncements that we would say as a culture? Anything? Adequate mother? Adequate mother? Money. money, yes. Okay, sorry. Adequate mother. I'm like, that's cool. That's great. I'm sorry, money. Sorry, my bad. Like, like good mother, flourish. I mean, it's, I mean, there is a place for good mothers. Don't get me wrong. But cool, money. So yeah, right. That's absolutely right. Back on track here. Um, money, yes. M- more money you have, the more of a good life you're going to have, right? That's a, that's a, that's a great modern-day example of a cultural uh, beatitude. What else? Friends. Rent? Friends. friends. You got friends? Sorry, I'm not hearing things correctly here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> rent? You got rent? Cool. But friends, yes, if you have friends, it's even better. Friends, right? And in a lot of ways, that even gets translated over to like Instagram friends or followers on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, uh, the more you have, the better you are, the more happier your life is, right? And again, those that often have the, the most amount of friends or followers or those that even have the most amount of money, uh, you've probably seen some of those interviews of Jim Carrey floating around on the internet, interwebs, and uh, he's not happy. And I, I even read recently, he said something like, I wish every human being in America could experience incredible wealth so, so they can know how miserable it is when you have it. Yikes. So apparently, having all the money in the world is not the pathway to, quote-unquote, the good life. So if you believe that, you've been sold a bill of goods. So again, Jesus reframing everything around something else. What else? Let's take one more. What? Health, yes. So health, wealth, <laughs> friends, right? Health. you got good health, then somehow that's the path to good life. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, of course. But what happens if you don't have health? What happens if you get cancer? What happens if something horrific happens to you? You discover something that you don't have health. You cannot go on hikes with your family. You cannot travel. You cannot do certain things that maybe at one time you once had that were part of your life. 
we had a scare a couple weeks ago. My dad, some of you maybe have known this, my dad got, uh, he, he woke up on a Thursday, Wednesday, Wednesday morning. He had a stroke. We drove down. We spent some time with him. Two days later, he was actually released. It was a total miracle, but he still has some repercussions from that. And again, that was just this big wake-up call. Like, oh my gosh, like life can literally change in an instant. So none of these things, health, wealth, even friends, are guarantees, right? So what happens if we put our hope in these things that everybody says if you have these things? Again, modern day, cultural um, beatitudes. And we put our confidence in these things. What happens when they fall through? What happens when the bottom falls out? The rug gets slipped out, pulled out from underneath us, or these things expire, or our friends turn on us, or something really bad befalls us. Uh, does happiness go away? The sense of hope, the sense of blessing, depart. Jesus kind of presents it a different way. That's what I want to begin now to just jump in. We're running out of time, so I gotta I gotta wrap this up. All right, let me ask the question: um, To whom is Jesus addressing? This is an important one because uh, the first three beatitudes I think are really important. So I'm going to go back and just look at Matthew chapter four, verse twenty-three. Listen to what Jesus says, or uh, about Jesus. Matthew tells us about Jesus. It says that his fame, that's Jesus, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, all those who were afflicted with uh, various disease and pains, oppressed by demons, having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them all. And a great crowds followed him. So that jumps back into Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Again, just listen to how Matthew unpacks this. Again, as he describes this circumstance, it says he sees this crowd of people, uh, then he takes his disciples, and then he goes and sits down, on the, or climbs up this mountain, begins to sit down and teach them, and then he begins to open his mouth and share with them. Listen to what he says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he had sat down, uh, his disciples came to him, and then he begins to speak. So who, who are these people? Who, to whom is Jesus addressing? Some have said Jesus is only addressing his disciples, as if the disciples were 12. Uh, but again, if you're following Matthew's account, there, there's only four. Four people that would qualify as what we would call apostles or disciples. Because um, Jesus only calls Matthew, Mark, um, Andrew, and the, the fourth. Um, and that's, that's all we have right now. It's not until a few chapters later that Jesus actually calls 12 men to be his quote-unquote apostles or disciples. So... Uh, the word disciple is an important word because it basically means an apprentice or a follower of Jesus. So at this particular juncture in Matthew's story, how many disciples does Jesus have? A lot of people, apparently. Um, and who, who are they made up of? Like, what, what composes or comprises this massive crowd of people? Well, listen to it again. Those who are sick, afflicted, diseased, full of pains, oppressed, having seizures, people that are paralyzed. So let me just think about this. Think of a massive multitude of people that fit this description. The question is, what types of hopes and dreams do they have? So think about it this way. Here you are, you and I, we live on the Central Coast, and uh, we, we have incredible privileges. We live in America. We live in, a, like, arguably one of the greatest, most free nations on planet Earth. It's amazing, the privileges and opportunities that we have. What, what do you dream about? What are your hopes? All right? Now, compare that to what would be the hopes and dreams of a large community, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people that can't stand upright because they're paralyzed, that are radically afflicted. We might say uh, demon-possessed. We might even say overly, completely depressed. In today's world, they would, without question, get some sort of antidepressant. 
uh, or somebody whose life is broken, or they have sickness, or they have been ostracized from the community, the society, that their family, their, uh, their, their nation, their people have abandoned them. These are people that are broken, destitute, in the margins. Nobody cares about them. Nobody thinks about them. Nobody comes to them, asks their opinion about things of spirituality, or politics, or life, or generalities, anything. Nobody cares about these people. Except Jesus. What are their hopes and dreams? What are the greatest, deepest longings in the heart of a paralyzed person? Think about this. These are the people to whom Jesus sits down and begins to talk. I just want to set the stage for you to think about what Jesus is about to say. Listen. So, a lot of scholars have described the next eight to nine verses or eight to nine uh, descriptions or blessings that Jesus pronounces over these people. Uh, one of my favorites, a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, he basically breaks it down into three groups of the Beatitudes. The first group uh, describes the first three, where he breaks it down and says that this is addressing the idea of humility. Here's what he says. Those that are poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are meek. The third three he describes as dealing with the subject of justice. The uh, third three he describes uh, those that describe this concept of peace. And we'll go through these in just a second here. So just listen. I'm going to read through these um, in each of the threes and just, just listen to the passage. I'll make some comments on it, but mainly I just want you to listen to the words of Jesus. I'll keep my words brief in response. Just listen. Jesus speaks to this massive crowd of broken, marginalized, hurting, uncared for, unknown people in culture and society. Blessed are the poor spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As Matthew unpacks these Pictures. There's no doubt in my mind, again, I think even as we read this, there's a bigger picture. So if you want to think of it this way, like each one of these eight to nine representative uh, passages, think of them as little fragments of a stained glass window. And the stained glass is going to create a larger image. So each individual part on its own um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense isolated. But when you begin to put it together, it creates an image. And I think as Matthew writes this, he wants us to think about, be looking for, be asking, who is the image to whom he's referring to? Who is the one to whom these eight to nine composite parts form a whole united picture or display? So with that being said, again, let's go on to the very next set of passages, uh, verses uh, six through eight, where then Matthew goes on to continue. He says, blessed are those who hunger. This is, again, dealing with, according to this scholar, the idea of justice, um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So think about it this way. Those who live in a society and a culture, uh, think of righteousness as God putting to right that which is broken between people and between God. Do we live in a society like that? Not a sure question. Do we live in a society where there's a lot of brokenness between human beings and God, between human beings and other human beings? crazy. God bless you. The Bible word for that is righteousness. God putting back to right that which is out of order, that which is in chaos. 
And he says to those that, again, I think the first three examples that he describes, those who uh, are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those are the people that nobody's going to and asking their opinion. These people have this deep longing. So again, if you were to ask a community of deeply broken, disenfranchised human beings, what's your greatest hope? They would say, maybe, to be reunited with my daughter. That I could have a meaningful relationship with the person I love. That I can walk in right relationship with God the way I used to once have this relationship. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. To which Jesus says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And lastly, wrap it up on this little passage where he begins to talk about the subject of peace. And he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. These are people that make peace, the people that make for peace, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, I think there's a sequence to this, a, a connection to this. So if you were to be the type of person that lives to bring peace, rather than just kind of play in the status quo, rather than just lean right or lean left, or be someone that's just lobbing bombs over to the side that you oppose, if you choose to actually run in the middle and play peacemaker, which means you learn to ask questions of those whom you disagree with on the right, or with whom you disagree with on the left, and you begin to ask questions of them. You try to be a peacemaker. Do you realize what will happen? You will likely become enemies of both sides. You know that, right? Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever had two family members or people or roommates that you know that they're at odds with each other, and you try to like jump into the midst of the of fight, and you begin to say, like, well, you know what? Have you thought about what they're actually saying? Or you go to them, have you thought about what they're actually saying? Because what they said seems to make a lot of sense. And this person will get mad at you because they think that you're siding with that person. And this person will get mad at you because they think that you're siding with this person. Listen to the promise again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. question that I think we always, always have to wrestle with is whose approval are we longing for? The Son of God, Jesus, this is pronouncement. It's absolutely amazing. But then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So if you're going to be this type of person that's taking upon yourself a role of being a peacemaker, uh, you will be persecuted. You will find yourself in the midst of heated debates and challenges and hardship and pressure and oppression. And if you choose to not be the type of person that is angry and content, contentious and oppressive, meaning you choose to be a peacemaker, you will find yourself crushed and persecuted. And then finally, verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, listen to the very last passage in that little section right there, and I'll read it. I don't think I have it up on the screen. It just says, this, Blessed are you when others revile you. And then he goes on. He said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who believe, who were before you. So the big question that I want to finish with is, next slide, is uh, can we think of one uh, who actually embodied humility and justice and peace? Can we think of one who, by way of humility, became impoverished, like lost everything, gave it all up, was born in a manger, let's just say hypothetically, who mourned, uh, who was meek. And the, the word meek, I didn't really expound upon that 
Uh, but the idea of power under constraint. Don't think of meek as we, all right? Uh, I know they, they rhyme, but they're totally different. Meek has to do with this idea of incredible power and significance and strength, though not flaunting it. You get it? It's a person that's able to say, look, I, I know that I have some level of significance and authority and power, but you know, I'm not going to go play that card. The Bible actually says that Moses was, was meek. Was Moses important? Totally important. It's really important. In fact, there's, there's a whole other secondary theological nerd geek scenario that I can get into, which I'm not going to. That there are major comparisons that Matthew's trying to make between Jesus and Moses. I'll give you one hint. He says, and Jesus went up on a mountain. Whoa. What's happening here? He's literally trying to say that Jesus is the new Moses. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of Moses. But he's far more. God has tricks up his sleeves. And what we see ultimately is that humility and injustice, someone that hungered and thirsts for righteousness to put the world right, who's merciful and yet pure of heart. Thirdly, in terms of peace, being a peacemaker, Jesus, we see ultimately, he was persecuted and wounded. So if your answer, obviously, to this was Jesus, as obviously just gave the big E on the I chart, um, then you answered rightly. Because this is where I think Matthew is trying to point our hearts and our attention to. And here's this brings up the big next slide. I'll wrap it up with this. Is Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. It's fantastic. He had written on this. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with his works and writings, I would highly recommend check him out. He was actually a pastor during the time of the Third Reich. And... Uh, Amazing. He, he preached the Reich of Jesus. If you're not familiar with that, figure it out. It's amazing. The idea of the reign of Jesus versus the reign of Hitler. And he said this, that the faith community of the blessed, so the question is, who is the blessed? The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified one. With him, they lost everything. With him, they found everything. So at the end of the day, I think what Jesus is basically doing is he's, I, I like to think of it this way. He's about to expound this incredible teaching on what it looks like to live under the authority of God. And he opens up with these nine beatitudes or blessings or pronouncements of blessing over someone's life. And he begins by pointing out the first three, which are deeply broken and flawed people. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about humility. Because look, at the end of the day, people that are poor in spirit, people that do not have anything that they're leaning upon or looking to as forms of accolades, they've got nothing. No one's going to them for their opinion. They have nothing to lean back upon. These are the ones that literally recognize, I have nothing except the trust in this God. Humility. That he comes to these people. And I think what Jesus is saying is that you are blessed your life is able to experience some degree, some measure of flourishing. Not because of your condition. Not because you're poor in spirit. But though you're poor in spirit, as you turn to me, and as you discover me, I am the king that will set your world to right. I'm present. I'm here. I'm coming. I'm launching a new work, new society, new kingdom upon this planet that will overcome the old society, the old culture, the old kingdom that's decaying and destroyed and coming undone, falling apart at the seams. I'm coming to launch something new. Blessed are you who come to me. Do you realize how good of news that this is for all of us? And I want to finish with this passage. In fact, I'll have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up with a song. Isaiah chapter 55 says this. 
Let's listen to these uh, words from Isaiah. This is kind of what's called a prophetic uh, passage, looking forward to a messianic moment. Meaning, again, big theological words. It just basically means looking forward to a day when the king, Messiah, will rule and reign. And what Isaiah is describing or is pointing out to, he says in this little passage, Isaiah chapter 55, he says, is anyone thirsty? Just think about that. Just pause reflectively and consider. Anyone thirsty? Not physically thirsty, of course, but... I mean, it could be physically thirsty, but any form of thirst in your heart. What are the deepest, maybe even the most powerful longings in your heart? What are they? He says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come. Take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does not do you any good? Listen to me, and you will eat of what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And I will give you all the unfailing love that I promised to David. Matthew's gospel opens with this declaration that the king has come. Not on a white horse, not with a sword in his hand, not coming to kill or throttle his enemies, but as a babe born in a manger who's given up everything to rescue, and to redeem, and to welcome. So, where are you? How do you think about the kingdom and the reign of this God? How have you positioned your life under the authority of King Jesus? This is the invitation to all of us. Then you might be here this morning. You're not a Christian. You've never even really wrestled with the claims of Jesus. Uh, super glad you're here. You may be someone that is a Christian. And you may have read through the Sermon on the Mount dozens of times over your life. This is an invitation for you to re-experience, to rethink what it means to live under the authority of the King. So why don't we all stand? I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll have some leaders up in the front to worship together, to pray for you. If you have need for anything that's gone on in your life, we're here to pray for you. Don't miss an opportunity where God may want to actually move and work upon and within your life and maybe through your life. So let's respond to God. Let's just open our hearts wide and open to God. Uh,